Well, it may seem to some that we're stalled in Daniel chapter 7, but there's more, more to explore, more to talk about. And I want to begin this morning to talk and, and look more specifically at the little horn uh, that is described in Daniel's vision, and more particularly in uh, verses 8, 11, 20 through 22, and 24 through 26. And I encourage you, do read those verses on your own, and you might want to uh, just jot down uh, some of the things that the uh, interpreter says, and indeed the dream describes about that little horn. Just by way of review, real quickly, Daniel was told uh, in verse 17, as he inquired about the meaning of this dream and this vision, uh, he was told about those four beasts that he saw arising up out of the sea, that they were, in fact, representative of four kings or four kingdoms that would rise from the earth. And we, we, we describe those kingdoms, uh, and, and most commentators would agree. Uh, it starts with the Babylonian kingdom uh, through the Medo-Persian, uh, and then the, uh, uh, the Macedonian kingdom under Alexander the Great, and then uh, ultimately the Roman Empire. And uh, this description of the, uh, of the first beast, as I said, seemed to be uh, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. So it all starts with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, and of course that was the, uh, the king and the empire under which Daniel was taken captive uh, from Jerusalem. And again, no attempt is made to say uh, which kingdoms those second and third beasts represent. Uh, Daniel doesn't seem to be at all interested in what those kingdoms are. Um, he is only interested in the very last kingdom. Uh, if you look with me again at verse 19... He says, uh, I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. So this beast has particular interest and fascination for Daniel. And uh, the answer that's given to him uh, was that this fourth beast, this fourth kingdom, uh, would come on the earth. It would be very, very powerful as evidenced by that, uh, by that description. And it would also produce ten kings, or ten sub-kingdoms, if you will, uh, who would ultimately give way to one final king who would be different from all the others. And this one final king would be, uh, would be uh, arrogant, and he would be treacherous, and he'd be blasphemous. You see that in verses 24 through 25. And then in verse 25... Uh, the angel emphasizes that this final king so hates God that he cannot resist taking out his hatred on those who would trust in God and that he would, in fact, prevail over those saints for a season. And that season is described by the, by the phrase a time, times, and half a time, which many commentators uh, would suggest would equal the equivalent of three and a half years, and then by extension, you, they would say this is the uh, three and a half years of the uh, of the seven year tribulation period. We're not going to get into that yet. Uh, we have lots of time to deal with that, so uh, you just might want to hold that in abeyance a little bit. Okay, not that's not so hard and fast. But the bottom line now is as we as we as we look at this, the question is who is this king? Who is this little horn? Uh, we can't know specifically because 
Uh, it, we just have no, not enough evidence. But there's, there's enough evidence to give us some insight into uh, what this king is like, his character, uh, out of the environment in which he arises. And so uh, we can learn a few things for him, about him this morning. If, if, in fact, the fourth beast is the Roman Empire, as, again, most commentators seem to agree, then the little horn would refer, given the statements about it in the text, the little horn would refer to some great anti-Christian persecutor of the true church who would arise within the Christian era and within the civilization that was created by that Roman Empire. So that would be the historical context in which this person would arise. Is this a real person? I think so. A real person in a real system. Now again, this would seem to agree with the interpretation given by the Apostle Paul. And we'll look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, so you might want to stick your finger there. And also in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17. Turn real quickly with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's writing in the context of the Roman Empire. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning of verse 3, he describes one who's called a man of lawlessness. And note the context in which this man arises. He says, don't let, anyone deceive, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped and even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. So that's that's an important clue. The secret power of lawlessness that's going to mark this man of lawlessness is already at work, and it's it's starting out in the kingdom of uh, Rome. He says, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And that's a whole interesting study in and of itself. There are a number of views of what, in fact, or who, in fact, is holding back uh, this, the revelation of this man of lawlessness. And we'll get into that down the road, too. Then he says in verse 8, And then the lawless, one will, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless, lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So they were open clearly to error. They were open to deception. They did not love the truth. And so Paul describes this individual, a man of lawlessness, and he seems to identify this with the person symbolized by the little horn and was going to develop within the Roman Empire and do his devastating work on earth before being destroyed by Jesus Christ at his second coming. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. We're going to be flipping back and forth, by the way, so you better have your nimble fingers going. All right. 
The book of Revelation also seems, in, in, in particularly in chapter 17, seems to identify the Roman Empire, uh, which was already uh, persecuting the Christian church, uh, seems to identify the Roman Empire with this fourth beast. Uh, if you look at verse 9, uh, John writes, uh, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. He talks about the ten horns and so forth, but the, the, the context seems to indicate that this was the Roman Empire, or at least the culture, uh, the civilization was created by the Roman Empire. Turn back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, says that these ten horns or these ten kings will arise from this fourth kingdom to rule. And again, the eleventh king, the eleventh horn, finally appears, overcomes three of the ten kings. Four specific statements identify this little horn. Number one, he speaks great words against the Most High. Number two, he persecutes the saints. Number three, we're told he tries to change set times and laws. And finally, he will be destroyed by the direct judgment of God we're told that his body will be burned and his kingdom will be destroyed. That's a picture of ultimate, absolute, total destruction. So this one who is a terrific threat, who actually succeeds for a season in his threats, will finally be destroyed. Because this little horn continues until the coming of the Ancient of Days, and because his description is similar to the man of lawlessness that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, who would be revealed just before the day of the Lord, this 11th little horn has been identified as the Antichrist. I've studiously tried to stay away from that term until now, uh, speaking specifically in the language of, of, uh, of Daniel, the little horn, the little horn, and of Paul as the man of lawlessness. So, so it seems to be that there is a great deal of similarity between the little horn, the man of lawlessness, and the one who will be identified as the Antichrist. The word Antichrist appears only in the epistles of John. In fact, in four places, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, verse 22, chapter 4, verse 3, and 2 John, verse 7. In these passages, as John writes... John is primarily concerned not so much to identify the Antichrist. He is more concerned uh, with an immediate doctrinal issue, doctrinal problem or, or error that's confronting the first century church. And that doctrinal problem has to deal with the person of Christ. In other words, who is Jesus Christ? What person is being preached? What are, being, what are people being taught? What are, what are people learning? What are people saying about Jesus? You remember Jesus said, who do the people say that I am? 
the same issue is going on. Some people say he was a prophet. Some people say he was a good man. Uh, and, and particularly the heresies in the first century were such that they were denying the person of Christ. In other words, how Christ existed. Was he, in fact, fully God and fully man at the same time? And there was much debate and much denial of that, uh, given the various heresies, Gnosticism being one of them. And we won't go into a long explanation of that, but just understand that this was the issue that John was dealing with. And, and he spoke of a certain class of people as a type of the Antichrist who was to come. Now, what is a type? Do you recall? We talked about this some time ago. What's a type? What does that language mean? A foretelling, or, or, or a picture of, a symbol of something that would come later, okay? Uh, and we see the, the, the whole Old Testament, the, the, the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament of the Mosaic Law was a type, a picture of the one final sacrifice by Jesus on that cross. And uh, the temple and all that is a type of the temple in heaven, if you will, or the, the abode of God in heaven. So <clears throat> John spoke of a certain class of people as a type of the Antichrist which was to come. Now the question is, who were these people? Who was he speaking of? I'm going to suggest to you, they were not political leaders, and they were not atheists. The people that John called Antichrists were apostates. Apostates were people who professed to be Christians, but who denied the Lord by following false teachings and were, these false teachings were creeping into the church. John's concern was for Christians to hold to the original faith as taught to them in the beginning. In other words, when the apostles first came and they began to, to teach about Jesus, they taught exactly what Jesus taught them, guided by the Holy Spirit. This is why you read in the book of Acts in chapter 2, Luke records that the first century church, uh, they were devoted to a number of things, one of which was the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching specifically addressed the person of Jesus Christ. So it's imperative that we know and understand who Jesus is. And these, this is one of the two major doctrinal issues, uh, even today, uh, where people go off. The, the two major doctrines are salvation by grace through faith alone. Not by works that anyone should be saved. And there's much, much confusion. And this is where the cults get all mixed up. Because they fall into the trap of wanting to justify themselves as we naturally do. Isn't that true? Don't we naturally want to justify ourselves? So we think it's very logical that we can justify ourselves. No, we can't. It's humiliating for human beings in our pride and arrogance. It's absolutely humiliating to think that we cannot do anything to save ourselves. It's simply by, by grace, God's grace to us, through faith in Jesus Christ. And the second issue is the person of Christ, uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. That is the other second major doctrine that is, is under fire and has been under fire ever since the inception of the church. So those two major doctrines are critical to know and critical to understand. When people come knocking at your door, those are the two issues. Salvation by grace through faith alone and the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ just wasn't a man. He wasn't just a prophet. He was God in the flesh. And that's where people get tripped up. And that's the same thing is going on in the first century. And so John, John says, I don't want you to be deceived by 
any new and novel doctrine of men that's coming down the pike. And there, there's no end to our imagination. Isn't that true? We can think up all sorts of new things to attract a crowd, to tickle people's ears, to make them feel good so that we can get their money. <laughs> but the gospel, the gospel is absolutely critical to know. Now notice how John stressed that which had been preached at the beginning. All through his letters, he stresses it. He uses that phrase, at the beginning, in 1 John chapter 1. Turn to 1 John with me. 1247 he says this he says that which was from the beginning which we have heard now the we he's talking about is the apostles and what they have heard they had heard from Christ he said this we proclaim to you this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that which we heard from the beginning. This is the original, if you will, truth that Jesus taught. In chapter 2, verse 7, John again speaks of the instruction they had since the beginning and that these people had heard since the beginning. In chapter 2, verse 24, John says, See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. The idea is, if you deny the Son, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, if you don't know who the Son is, then you don't have the Father. You follow? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, the Father and I are one. And so if you believe and you have the Son, and you are living by faith, the biblical Jesus, then you have the Father. If you remain in this truth that they received from the beginning. The, the whole issue is, who is Jesus? That's the issue. That's always the battleground. In chapter 3, verse 11. Again, this is the message that you heard from the beginning. See, again and again and again, he underscores that which was from the beginning. In Second John, verse 5. He mentions that we have had from the beginning. In 2 John, verse 6, as you have heard from the beginning. In reference to the falling away from that original pure faith, Paul says that the secret power or the secret mystery, again, back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, of the lawlessness, he says, this is already at work. People are already being deceived. And this was going on right there in the first century. And it started out on a small scale, uh, but it would grow. And it would continue to grow. Uh, and it would be eventually uh, be uh, seen to be powerfully effective uh, when the man of lawlessness would be finally revealed. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, didn't he? And you, t you plant this mustard seed, and it grows into a large tree. Well, the same thing is true with error. It starts out small. That's why in, in Daniel, it's the little horn. And gradually, over time, increases in size and influence and power. 
Not a big, big horn in the beginning. And so these heresies, uh, which are characteristic of, 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 of the little horn, would be also start out small. John also stressed that the people must continue in the original faith. And he referred to those who departed from the original faith into false doctrines. He referred to them as antichrists. We can therefore understand that John, just like the Apostle Paul, expected antichrist to be corrupted with doctrines that were a departure from the true Christianity as it was taught in the beginning. In other words, the Antichrist is not going to tell the truth. He's going to be corrupted with false doctrines. Again, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> he says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. So he's, he's relating the many antichrists of his day with the antichrist that is to come. So he sees a parallel. He says, this is how we know it is the last hour, because these antichrists are appearing. There's, there's increasing uh, an, antagonism and heat against the original true faith, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ. He says, verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now the Christians of the first century had heard that Antichrist would come. This is what John is saying. They, they know that. They, they, they've been taught that. And John points out that even at the time he wrote to them, there were many Antichrists, and he used these as a type of the Antichrist to come. And these Antichrists uh, were not, they were not atheistic rulers in the political realm. No, they were people who had been identified with the church. This, this is what is so troubling. These are people who've been identified with the church. What does he say? Hey, that he went out from us. So that must mean they were part of us. They were presumably professing Christians. Professing Christians, but they had adopted doctrines that were not part of the true faith as it was taught when? At the beginning. Verse 19, he says, they went out from us. How did they go out? Does it mean that they, they, just, they just left the church, they just went out to do their own thing? No. What he's talking about is they, they departed from us, they went out from us doctrinally first. And then they would physically separate themselves. But they went out from us, they departed from us first doctrinally. Doubtless then, as it is now, the deniers of the Son would still call themselves Christians. There are masses of people, millions of people today, who deny the biblical Jesus Christ, and they still call themselves Christians. They're all, all around the world, and they are deceived. There are people sitting in this room who do not know Jesus Christ. You are a professing Christian, but you are not truly born again because you do not know the real Christ. How could you say that? 
Because in a group this size, there has to be those people. And because of my past experience, people come up to me year after year after year and say, you know what, I fought you, I argued with you, but you know, you were right. I didn't know Christ. I was playing a religious game. I would use the name Jesus, but he was not really my Lord. There was no real fruit in my life until I bowed my knee to Christ as he was taught at the beginning. And so these people were presumably professing Christians, but they departed doctrinally. Now, if then, if, 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 the, if the ones that John used as a type of the Antichrist that was to come, if they were professing Christians, but they had also departed into erroneous doctrines, if that happens, if that was true, if the premise is correct, why should we look for Antichrist, the Antichrist, somewhere outside the realm of professing Christianity? Now, I can't be definitive about this, but the the evidence seems to lead me in that direction. If the Antichrist would not rise to power within the church realm, in what possible way, then, could these apostates, of whom John wrote, be a type of the Antichrist? Do you follow my logic here? Again, look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Now, we've already talked about that. If you you don't have the true Christ, you don't have the, the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Again, we know Jesus clearly taught that. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Now, whatever may have been the belief of these apostates who denied the Father and the Son, their doctrine was obviously not that which had been taught when? At the beginning, it was something different. It was therefore considered a sign of apostasy, and its advocates were considered by John to be antichrists. Now, since this passage says that the antichrist denies the Father and the Son, some have suggested that the antichrist, or uh, or that simply an, an atheist or an infidel, is meant denying the Father and the Son. And so, typically, uh, we have, in our culture, uh, we have come to think of the Antichrist as being the world's number one atheist. Why? Well, because he denies the Father and the Son. Or that the blasphemy of the little horn seems to be downright uh, that of an infidel. But the early Christians never heard 
of an infidel antichrist. Those that John referred to as antichrists were not atheists. They were not infidels. They were professing Christians. If that's the case, then what do we make of the statement that they denied the Father and the Son? Now, you would, you would logically think someone who denies God, denies the Father and the Son, would be an atheist. I don't believe. I deny God. I don't believe there's a God, right? That's the logical way we would normally think about it. That's not how the word deny is used in this passage, and it's not how it's used in, elsewhere in the New Testament. Let me give you some examples here in a second. Did they deny the existence of God? What do you think? No, of course not. But they did deny him in other ways, mainly by claiming to be Christians and yet adhering to false doctrines which were not the original teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles. This point really, really becomes more and more clear when we see how the word deny is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Turn to the little book of Jude. And because you're all Bible scholars, you know exactly where that book is, right? The little book of Jude, and I want you to note with me verses 3 and 4. Jude, now like, like John, wrote of the apostasy that was creeping in among the Christians who lived during uh, this latter part of the first century. So he's warning his congregation also. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, in other words, he was going to encourage them and remind them about this great salvation. He says, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, when was it once for all entrusted to the saints? At the beginning. beginning. And what's he saying? He says, "I, I felt compelled, constrained to write to you to what? Contend for the faith. Now, why would he say that? Contend for the faith, you think? Yeah, because there's apostasy coming into the church. There's errors creeping in the church. You've got to stand firm. You've got to know the truth. You've got to stand for the truth. You've got to argue for the truth. He says in, in the next verse, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, now notice this, have what? Secretly slipped in among you. That's, that's, a, that's an important cue. They've secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. What does he mean by that? These false teachers were so deceptive with their new novel doctrines that they had secretly slipped in. So deceptive. And by their erroneous and counterfeit doctrines, they were denying the Lord. It was through the doctrines that they denied. They didn't deny that Jesus didn't exist. Nothing is said that would indicate that these apostates denied the existence of God or denied the existence of Jesus. These people were not atheists. If they had come in among the Christian church with an open denial of the existence of God... It could not then be said of them that they secretly slipped in, could it? No, of course not. Turn to 2 Peter. 
2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Peter, just like John, just like um, uh, Jude, writes of apostasy that would come in among the Christians. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, he's not just talking to the first century church. He's talking to all of us. There's always going to be false teachers among us. Always people who are going to try to deceive with their own doctrine. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying, notice the word again, what is it? Denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. So the, the idea, the sovereign who bought them, the, the implication there is that they were professing Christians. Bringing swift destruction on themselves, many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Many were going to be lead, led astray. So here again, we read of false teachers that would come in among the Christians and they will again secretly introduce destructive heresies. The way they would deny the Lord that bought them was by turning from the gospel he taught and teaching erroneous doctrines instead. That's how they deny him. They would not deny the existence of God. They would not deny the existence of Jesus. For that, that teaching simply would not deceive anybody, would it? Especially the people who Peter's writing to. The church knows about God. The church knows about Jesus. And if they came in and said, well, we deny God and we deny Jesus, uh, can they, are they going to stay there? Are they going to be accepted? Is that characteristic of someone who secretly slips in to deceive? No, not at all. They would not deny the existence of God. Peter, interestingly, on an earlier occasion recruited by, uh, recorded by uh, Luke in the book of Acts, uh, in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, he said, he uses the same word, deny. He said, the Jews handed Christ over to be killed and disowned or denied him before Pilate. Now, in the NIV translation, the, the, the word is disowned, but in, the, in the, the Greek, the word can be translated either denied or disowned, either way. They denied him. They denied him. He said they denied, they disowned the holy and the righteous one and killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Again, the ones who denied Christ did not deny his existence. It's not a matter of existence. They denied him by rejecting his claims and having him crucified. That's how they denied him. Turn to Titus chapter 1. Paul writes to Titus. Titus is pastoring uh, on the island of Crete. Paul also used the word deny in connection with those who taught false doctrines within the Christian realm. Titus chapter 1, let's look at verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach 
and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So, indeed, uh, Titus knows his congregation, or out of the group out of which they come. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith. Sound in the faith, I suggest to you, has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they'll be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God. Now notice this, but by their actions, they what? They deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Notice again how the word deny is used in verse 16. The people referred to profess to know God. They claim to be Christians, but their actions and their teachings did not line up with the true Christian faith. In fact, in their works and in their speech, they denied Christ. But it was, a deni- was not a denial of the existence of God or the existence of Christ. See, these people were not atheists. That's my point. So if we consider the use of the word deny by uh, John, by Jude, by Peter, uh, by Paul, uh, you can understand that it does not carry with it, in these, sense, in this, in these contexts, uh, the meaning of atheism. The question of the existence of God does not even enter into the picture in these passages. Those who denied the Lord did so by not fully following the original Christian faith in word and in deed, and these people were called antichrists. Turn again back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. In other words, don't believe everything that people tell you. But rather, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So he's He's encapsulating there the doctrine, the teaching of the person of Christ. Jesus, the Christ, has come in the flesh. And amongst all the heresies, that was the crux of the matter. People were denying that Jesus was the Christ, that he'd come in the flesh. Some said he was a phantom. Some said that he achieved divinity uh, by his good works. And all sorts of, of strange teachings uh, were about Jesus and, in, in the first century and, and today. You know. He says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. 
You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So he gives a test. This is how you can separate the, 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 the ones who are teaching the truth from the ones who are teaching falsehood. Because what? John is an apostle. He got the word from the Lord right from the get-go, right from the beginning, and he taught that which he had heard. And so people who would listen to him were of God. People who did not listen to him were not of God. That was the spirit of falsehood. Do you follow? This is what he's suggesting. So again, since John and the other apostles had received the, this message from Christ himself, he could say that those who believed their message were indeed of God, while those who would not continue in that same apostolic faith uh, were not of God. And those who brought in these erroneous doctrines were called false prophets. They were not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but rather by the spirit of falsehood. And the spirit of falsehood could be known also as the spirit of antichrist a false doctrine that had apparently caused a lot of confusion at that time john wrote again was his teaching uh, that christ had not come in the flesh by the way christ is not jesus last name jesus christ you know that it's jesus the christ the anointed one the messiah if you will okay that's a title and John, John in, 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 uh, in his second epistle also, he warns the people to continue in the truth. He says, what you have heard from the beginning. This was the apostolic doctrine. Now, whatever other particular teachings may have been, uh, the point that, that he's trying to make, uh, that Jesus had not come in the flesh, it is evident that those who accepted these false teachings were not remaining in the true doctrine of Christ, but rather were departing from the true faith. And departing from the original faith was considered the spirit of Antichrist. It was a type of that great apostasy that would come. Now we've seen in John's writings as we've just read them, that he emphasized the truth that had been taught from the beginning, this apostolic faith, this doctrine of Christ himself. And those who departed from that pattern into false teachings, false doctrines, regardless of what those doctrines were, these people, he refers to them as antichrists, each being a type of the antichrist who was to come. So he makes a direct correlation False teachers within the Christian realm, by teaching false doctrines, denied, in effect, denied the Father and the Son, having departed from the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Now, what does the word Antichrist actually mean? Because this has a bearing on our understanding here. The word Antichrist can have three possible meanings. First of all, it could be it could mean simply against Christ, as in in opposition to. It could secondly mean instead of Christ, or in place of. <clears throat> Thirdly, it could mean both. 
It could mean both. Now, some would apply only the first meaning, that the Antichrist was a person who was clearly against Christ. But I think that this would not be a very specific point of identification. It's too general. Millions of people have been, quote-unquote, against Christ. Um, Paul, before his conversion, was against Christ, wasn't he? The Jews were against Christ. Pagans were against Christ. Members of non-Christian religions in various degrees have all been against Christ. But I think such a broad application of that word could not be what John means. His definition uh, was far more definite than that. When John spoke of certain people who were a type of the Antichrist, which was to come, he did not refer to all opposers of Christ. Instead, he referred to a certain group of people, a certain class of people, apostates, people who professed to be Christians, who were teaching views that were contrary to the true original faith. These were not openly against Christ, not at all. They were professing Christians. Now, if we bear those things in mind, I think at least I've come to the position of saying that the full meaning of Antichrist applies. In other words, it's both. Both are implied by Antichrist. What do I mean by that? That is that the Antichrist would claim to be as Christ and by so doing would actually be against Christ. You see? See how they're both? He would seek to take the position that rightly belonged only to Christ himself. And Paul teaches about the man of lawlessness. Back in 2 Thessalonians, in verse 4, he says, He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, and even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, the equivalent of God, or Christ, if you will. So also, John, does John speak about using the term Antichrist? He would claim to be as Christ, and by so doing would actually oppose Christ. So Antichrist really means both, to be instead of and to be against, ultimately. Now, Paul and John both, they mention the Antichrist, not so that we might necessarily identify this person specifically. Now, that's always the answer. Who is the Antichrist? Who is the Antichrist? I don't think that's their issue. The, the scriptures are vague enough so that we don't have clear, specific uh, means of identifying who that person might be. No, they mention the Antichrist that we, simply that we might be ready for anything that threatens our faith. Remember, his main thought is to talk about what? The doctrine that was being taught. The false doctrine. The Antichrist were kind of like afterthoughts. It was these people who were teaching the false doctrine. The real threat was the false doctrine. Are you with me? Does that make sense to you? But if our faith is strong, if we know what the Scriptures say, if we're standing on the Word of God, if we understand Christian orthodoxy, if we are theologically clear and accurate, 
And this is always a tragedy because I've heard years and years and years, and people still do this. Even, even preachers and teachers, they say, doctrine isn't important. If you hear that, run far from that person. <laughs> doctrine is critical. If we have not doctrine and we don't know what we believe, and if we don't know why we believe it, we have not a leg to stand on, and we are vulnerable to any and everything that comes down the pike, aren't we? It's only when you know the truth, then can you be set free. So our faith has to be strong. And when our faith is strong, we won't need to be afraid of what lies ahead. We won't need to be trembling in our boots. Oh, the Antichrist. Oh, the Antichrist. But people are. People are scared to death. They're, they're trembling in their boots. Oh, you know, I don't want to get the mark of the beast and all that stuff. And what's going to happen? If your faith is strong, you don't have to worry about anything. Because if your faith is strong, you know that he who lives in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know that if, you, if Christ is for you, who can be against you? It's only going to hurt for a little while. Right? So what if they pull your fingernails out? God will give you the grace. God gives you the grace to endure it. I mean, you talk to people who, who've suffered persecution and trial, and, and, and they will tell you their testimonies again and again and again. They'll say, you know, somehow God graced my life. He strengthened me. He enabled me. Even in our own, even in our own circumstances of, of difficulty and trial, uh, we know the grace of God. God's favor is on us. Isn't that true? We can endure just about anything, can't we? Because we keep in view who? Our faith is strong. Our faith is strong. This is, the, this is the point that these writers are making. We talk about the little horn and, and, and the man of lawlessness and how both of these personages seem to be the same as the Antichrist at the end. We don't worry about that. That's not our focus. I say this because they're in the text and we want to speak about them. But the writers really, John and Paul and, and the others, really are more concerned that our faith be strong, that we remain in the faith. Peter says, when all else has failed, stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Know what you believe and know why you believe it. And when you do, you don't need to be afraid of what lies ahead. And especially this man of lawlessness, because we know we know he has already been defeated. He's already been defeated. The Bible's telling us that. We learned it there in, in the 7th chapter of Daniel. We learned it from Paul. We learned it from John. These people cannot last. Error does not last. Only the truth stands. Only the truth lasts. And those who stand on the truth are the people who are going to what? Be victorious. We're going to come through in the end. God is in control. Say that with me. God is in control. Our task, our task is to be prepared for Christ's return. And how are we prepared for Christ's return? Standing firm in the faith. Not be moved. Know the truth. 
Live it out. That's how you're prepared for Christ's return. And that's how we also will be able to tell others the good news so that they too will be prepared. A lot of people are going to get caught unawares. A lot of people sadly deceived today. Tragic, tragic. And we are doing our very best. Well, I shouldn't say our very best. No one ever does their very best, right? We're getting better, are we? At sharing the good news and telling people. But again, it all goes back to us knowing what the truth is and being strong in our faith. Amen, church? Father, thank you again. We love you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for this book we call the Bible. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for all the opportunities you've given us in our congregation to know your word and to learn your truth. We thank you, Lord, for the community that you've given us here that we can stand shoulder to shoulder, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, um, comforting one another, exhorting one another, Lord, along in the faith. Thank you. And Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is Lord. He is the Christ. He is God in the flesh. He is our Savior. He is our everything. We worship him this morning. We worship you, Father. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to have your way in our lives. We surrender more and more of our life to you today. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment. I want to talk to anybody who this morning is a little fuzzy on Jesus. Maybe you are tantamount to what we're describing here is a professing Christian, but not necessarily a possessing Christian. There's still there's this willfulness about your life, the disobedience, this pride, this arrogance you've dug your heels in, and you've not really truly submitted your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. It's pride. And I want to give you an opportunity this morning. I don't know who you are. But as I said earlier, I'm sure there's at least somebody here today who needs to make a decision and say, you know what, I do need, I need to give up, I need to surrender my life, I need to put my faith wholly in Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Not one of my own imagination, not one of my own design, but the one that's preached and taught in the Scriptures. So just consider this. If you haven't made that profession of faith yet, I want to give you an opportunity. Jesus says, if, you, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. I want to bring you right up to that moment of decision now. If you're ready and willing to be full in, to entrust your life to Jesus, you ready to make that decision this morning? You can do so just by signaling me while everybody else's heads are bowed, their eyes are closed, they're praying. Just by signaling me, by lifting your hand, getting my attention, say, Pastor, I want to make that decision right now. I'm giving my life to Jesus. Lift your hand right now. Go. Anybody? Anybody at all? 
I see your hand down here. Okay, God bless you. Anybody else? Don't delay. Here's what I want you to do. You raise your hand. I want you to just, right now where you're sitting, call on the Lord. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you are the Lord. Confess your sins to him right now. Ask him for his forgiveness. And in your heart, repent. That means turn away from those things. There's some things that have had a grip on your life and you haven't been able to free from. He'll free you from them this morning. Surrender. Amen, church? Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Turn to your neighbor, and I want you to share one thing with your neighbor that you learned this morning that's significant to you. And then go ahead and pronounce a blessing on your neighbor. And if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Then let's stand together and praise God before we dismiss.